0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish, which is brought to you by Beta Brand, Best Fiends, BetterHelp, and Pretty Litter. Please excuse my voice. I'm recovering from the flu, so you're going to get a little funkier version of my voice on this episode, so bear with me. I have some new Patreon supporters to shout out, Annette O., Stephanie K., Danielle D., Megan S., Elizabeth H., and Maya T. Thank you all so much for your support. As I mentioned on social media recently, I just made my first donation to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute, and the donated funds came from my Patreon earnings. Much to my surprise, the organization's founder, Cheryl McCollum, reached out to me as soon as she received the check. Cheryl, or Mac as many people call her, called to let me know that she was going to use the donated funds to buy a kit that will help her team extract DNA for a cold case they're currently working on. The cold case involves the brutal sexual assault and murder of a young girl, and DNA might be the thing that solves it. I was so excited to hear from Mac personally, and to know that my Patreon supporters and I were able to help fund a DNA extraction kit that'll be used in a cold case that has gone unsolved for far too long. You can get more information about CCIRI by going to coldcasecrimes.org. One last thing before we get started. I want to warn you that this episode will feature graphic discussions regarding autopsy findings and a brutal crime scene. The episode also involves discussions regarding alleged sexual assault, as well as homophobic statements made by someone involved in the case. Please take care and use discretion before listening. On the evening of February 8th of 2005, two Torrance PD officers responded to a 911 call that led them to a home in Torrance, California. A large-statured man seemingly came out of nowhere, startling the police officers. As the man got closer to their patrol car, the officers could see that he was covered in blood. With a menacing look on his face, the man led the officers to a crime scene they will likely never forget. One of the officers later reported that she had never been so scared in her life. The shocking crime that occurred that February night left one person dead. A trial would take place and the jury had to decide whether the victim had been the perpetrator of crimes that ultimately led to his brutal death. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Robert Bob Gauchi. Located about 20 miles southwest of downtown Los Angeles, Torrance, California is a beach town in what's known as the South Bay Area of Los Angeles County. The coastal community enjoys classic Southern California warm weather and is the headquarters for many large corporations such as Honda Motors. Torrance has been a popular filming location for hit TV shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Olympic figure skater Michelle Kwan and famed movie director Quentin Tarantino have ties to the town. While Torrance draws many people in to enjoy its beautiful beaches and ideal weather, one particular day in the city would end tragically and provide for an eerie and gruesome scene. On February 8th of 2005, at approximately 6.12 in the evening, Torrance police officers Brian Osteen and Gina Mazzolini arrived at an average-looking, tri-level home located at 2226 West 232nd Street in Torrance. The home was in a nice, quiet neighborhood where everyone kept their lawn nicely manicured. Osteen and Mazzolini had been dispatched to the area after a 911 call came in With the caller reporting that a person was kicking someone who was on the ground. At the time that Osteen and Mazzolini arrived, the sun had set and the street lights were on. As Osteen and Mazzolini turned their patrol car onto 232nd Street and then parked one house down from the home at 2226, the officers observed a man who appeared from behind some tall bushes. The man, whom Mazzolini described as large and muscular, began walking toward their patrol car and waving his hands. The man had a menacing stare like that of a villain in a horror movie. The man continued walking toward the officers as a yellow glow from the streetlights illuminated around his body. When the large-statured man got close to Osteen and Mazzolini, they could see that he was covered in blood. After seeing that the man was covered in blood, Officer Mazzolini saw what appeared to be a body lying face down on the front lawn of the house. The person lying face down in the lawn was also covered in blood and didn't appear to be moving. Mazzolini further observed that the victim was only wearing a pair of shorts and the shorts had been pulled down around his thighs, exposing his buttocks. The officers identified the man who appeared from the bushes as 33-year-old Ashton Hurst. After seeing the man lying on the lawn covered in blood, Officer Mazzolini asked Hurst if the man was okay. His response was chilling. Hurst looked at the officers and said about the man on the lawn, He's dead. I killed him. He then added, He's a rape suspect. You'll see. You'll see he's a rape suspect. Upon hearing Hearst's admission that he killed the man on the lawn, Mazzalini cuffed him and then proceeded to approach the victim. When she got close, she could immediately see that he was not alive. The man's head had been smashed in, and she could see what appeared to be brain matter exposed. His head was nearly severed from his body, and there was a shockingly large amount of blood surrounding his body. Large amounts of blood were also observed along the concrete walkway leading up to the front door of the house. There was also blood on the front door. There was so much blood on the walkway and steps leading up to the front door that it was impossible for officers to avoid stepping in it as they entered the home. Normal procedure would be for anyone investigating the scene to be very careful not to step in the blood, given that Osteen and Mazzolini had no choice but to step in it. Their boots had to be photographed and printed afterward in order to separate their boot prints from shoe prints of the suspect or victim. When the 911 call came in that night, officers were told that there were potentially two people beating up another person. Given this information, officers Osteen and Mazzolini expected to find three people at the scene. When they arrived, however, they came upon a dead man lying in the yard and another man who admitted to killing him. After cuffing Hearst, Osteen and Mazzolini made their way into the home, fully expecting to find another suspect as they had been told there may have been two people beating up on another man. I had the opportunity to speak with Mazzolini about her recollection of this day, and she said this was the first time in her law enforcement career that she was afraid. As she moved her way through the house that evening, She thought that another suspect could jump out at her at any second. As we know now, there were only two people involved in the incident, but that's likely a moment that Gina Mazzolini will never forget. Upon entering the house, officers observed signs that made it seem as if a struggle had taken place inside the home. Chairs had been flipped over, and there was blood on the floors and walls. Ashton Hurst was placed under arrest and taken to the Torrance Police Department for booking. The victim was quickly identified as 44-year-old Robert Gauci, who was pronounced dead at the scene by paramedics at approximately 6.30 p.m. Robert Gauci, whom everyone called Bob, was later determined to be the stepfather of Ashton Hurst, who claimed to have killed him that February night. Robert James Gauci was born on June 2nd of 1960 in Los Angeles, California. Robert, who everyone called Bob later in life, was the youngest of three children to parents John and Dolores Gauci. One of Bob's older brothers, John, died in a head-on collision in 1989. Bob's parents raised him and his brothers in Torrance, where Bob, a talented athlete, attended North High School, and played catcher on the school's baseball team. Bob went on to graduate from Loyola Marymount University, where he also played baseball. After college, Bob played professional baseball for the Detroit Tigers organization, but an injury ended his professional baseball career. From 1984 to 1988, Bob was the assistant baseball coach at Harbor College. He came back for another year in 2005. Nicknamed the Gouch, Bob had noticeable wavy red hair and a thick red mustache to match. Friends and loved ones remembered Bob as being enthusiastic and having the ability to easily put a smile on your face. They remember him as having a unique vocabulary and when he laughed, you knew it was Bob. Bob loved baseball and he also cared a lot about those he coached. People who knew him say that Bob was the worst at remembering people's names, and he wasn't the most fashionable guy around. Bob would often call himself Baba Louie or the Grouch. Bob eventually met a woman named Melba Hurst in 1996. The two of them began dating and got married in Lake Tahoe, California in 1997, the year after they met. Bob eventually moved in with Melba and her son, 25-year-old Ashton Hurst, at their home located at 2226 West 232nd Street in Torrance. Hearst would grow to dislike his stepfather and believed he was not a good fit for his mother. The feelings were mutual, as Bob grew tired of Hearst's alleged freeloading off of his mother, his drug use, and failing to keep his business afloat. This tension Would prove fatal just eight years after Bob moved in with his wife and her son. Although it was clear from the moment that officers arrived on the scene that night that Bob Gauchi's injuries were significant, the autopsy confirmed that he died a brutal death. Bob's autopsy report, written by Dr. Pena, indicated that he sustained trauma to his head from repeated blows with a five pound weight. According to the report, Bob had large, gaping lacerations to more than one area on his scalp, which exposed his skull. Bob's face sustained injuries from being kicked repeatedly with steel-toe boots. He suffered severe bruising and his brain was swollen. Dr. Pena indicated that Bob had six stab wounds, primarily to his neck. One of the stab wounds, which was three inches deep, severed the corroded artery and left jugular vein. This injury alone would have resulted in death within one or several minutes after the body had been drained of blood. One of the other stab wounds, also fatal, severed a bone in Bob's neck as well as his spinal cord. The toxicology report indicated that Bob had no drugs in his system at the time of his death. The topic of drugs would come up again at trial. Dr. Pena concluded that Bob's manner of death was homicide. At the time of Bob Gauci's death, his wife and Ashton Hearst's mother, Melba Gauci, did not believe that her son was capable of committing such a brutal act. During telephone conversations with his mother from jail, Hearst confessed to killing his stepfather, but Melba told her son she didn't believe him. She went so far as to accuse her son of lying. Fast forward to her son's trial. Melba Gauchi's story would be vastly different when she took the witness stand. There is nothing like a well-fitting pair of pants. I recently wore my skinny leg cigarette dress pant yoga pants made by Beta Brand, and I felt so confident. Beta Brand knows what women want in a pair of pants, and it totally shows in their dress pant yoga pants that are perfect for a day at the office. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants are made to feel comfy like a pair of yoga pants, but make no mistake, Beta Brand's pants are built stronger than yoga pants, and they are totally office appropriate. These pants are on trend and they're so versatile. I wear my Dress Pant Yoga Pants to work, on date nights, virtually anywhere, and best of all, I can just toss them into the washing machine instead of breaking the bank at the dry cleaner. Ditch your uncomfortable, ill-fitting work pants and trade up for a pair of dress pant yoga pants. There's a style and color for everyone. Right now, Murderish listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com murderish. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com murderish. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com slash murderish for 20% off. Ishers, I recently told you about a really fun puzzle game that I've been playing on my phone. The game is called Best Fiends, like friends, but without the R. I've never been a gamer, but I do love keeping my brain stimulated during commercial breaks or while I'm standing in line for a latte in the morning. Best Fiends is the perfect and fun distraction when I need it, and most of all, I'm currently on level 26, while my teenager is in my dust at level 18. Look, I can't help that I'm a master at matching and solving puzzles, and blowing through all of the levels like my life depended on it. But seriously, putting the game down and picking up where I left off is so easy. If you're like me, you'll start playing Best Fiends and you won't want to stop. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Ashton Ivan Hurst was born on November 10th of 1971 in Indiana to parents Stephen and Melba Hurst. Ashton had two brothers named Troy and Adam, and a sister named Catherine. Hurst attended Tippecanoe Valley High School in Indiana, where he played on the football team. In his 20s, Hurst made his way to San Pedro, California, where he became heavily involved in a local boxing gym for youth who've been described as street kids. With his large and muscular frame, Hearst saw some success in boxing. In his mid-twenties, in 1995, he started his own business called Ironman Movers. The company, based in Torrance, California, provided moving services for people who were moving to a new house. In 1997, just a couple of years after it was established, the business was not going well. This was the same year that Hearst's mother married Bob Gauchy. Although the reasons for the failure of his business are unclear, perhaps the company's downfall had something to do with Hearst's mental condition. Hospitalized on more than one occasion, Hearst suffered from mental disorders that caused him to have homicidal tendencies. These tendencies were apparent on at least one occasion when Hearst, threatened to cut his mother's tongue out of her mouth. After Osteen and Mazzolini made the initial arrest, the Torrance Police Department took over the investigation into Bob Gauci's death. Homicide detectives got statements from Ashton Hurst, as well as his mother Melba and his sister Catherine. Neighbors who witnessed some of the events that took place the night Bob was killed were questioned along with co-workers of Bob Gauci and Ashton Hurst. The interview with Hurst, which was recorded, elicited what would be just one version of many that he would tell about the night he killed his stepfather. During his initial interview with detectives, Hurst said that when he arrived home the evening of February 8, 2005, his stepfather, Bob, walked out of his bedroom and he was completely naked. Hearst told detectives that upon seeing Bob naked, he said to his stepfather, you know, you should get out of my face. He said that Bob walked away at that time, and when he returned, he was wearing shorts. Hearst said he began hitting Bob after telling him he asked for it. He went on to say, and it just kept going, indicating that he continued to hit his stepfather. As part of their investigation, Detectives obtained six computers that belonged to the victim. During a search of what was on Bob's computers, Detective Marsha Barnett found fifteen to 16,000 pornographic images. 24 of the images, or roughly 2% of the total number of pictures, portrayed homosexual activity. During trial, the defense would use this information to prove their theory of what happened the night that Bob Gauci was killed. The search of Bob's computers also turned up an email that he had sent to another man. The email, which was sexually explicit in nature, gave the impression that Bob may have been involved in sexual activity with a man outside of his marriage. Detectives also found sex toys, lubricant, and condoms inside of Bob's vehicle. Audio from jailhouse telephone conversations between Ashton Hurst and his mother and sister were also reviewed during the investigation. These conversations revealed Hearst admitting to his mother that he hit Bob while they were inside the house and also while they were outside. During one conversation, he told his mother that he beat Bob to death. Hearst told his mother that the reason he killed Bob was because he was trying to do some sexual stuff to him that made him kind of flip out. Hearst told his mother that when he arrived home around 5.30 that evening, Bob came out naked and started talking all funny. According to Hearst, he told Bob he was not that way, and then he punched him. After punching his stepfather, Hearst told his mom that Bob began attacking him, and things just kept going from there. During their phone call, Hearst told his mother that Bob was trying to be homosexual with him, and then he admitted to kicking Bob in the head, and while they were outside, he said he continued hitting him with a five-pound dumbbell. Melba Gouchy called her son a liar and told him during their phone call that she did not believe him. She asked her son why he didn't just leave the house, and he told her that Bob got in front of him, grabbed his genitals, and then blocked the door. Melba, however, still did not believe her son's story, and again accused him of lying. Hearst continued to tell his mother that there were times that he would wake up feeling drowsy, and he now believes that it was Bob who had drugged him and molested him while Melba was at work. Melba still did not believe her son, and audio confirms that she continued to accuse him of lying. Hearst told his mother during that phone call that after he hit Bob, he was afraid. And believed he needed to kill him out of fear that nobody would believe that he was raped by his stepfather. Hurst also said that he killed Bob so he wouldn't have to live with brain damage for the rest of his life, given the severe beating he had endured. Melba told her son numerous times during this call, she did not believe a word he was saying. During a recorded phone call with his sister, Catherine, Hearst again said that Bob got naked, only this time, He added to his story that his stepfather wanted to have anal sex. Hearst said he attempted to leave, but Bob locked the door. It was at this time, according to what Hearst told his sister, that he grabbed the dumbbell and struck his stepfather with it. As he had told his mother, Hearst repeated to his sister that Bob touched his penis, adding that he violated me in a way that I've never been. He violated me a lot of other times, and I was trying to tell Mom because I think he, like, does rape drugs and stuff like that to people, to me at least. And I kept waking up thinking, like I was dreaming it. When Catherine asked her brother how Bob ended up in the front yard, he told her that after he struck him a couple of times in the back of the head with the dumbbell, Bob got up and ran for help. As he was yelling for help, Hurst said he smashed Bob's head in and stabbed him in the throat with a butcher knife he had taken from the kitchen. Given Hearst's statements claiming that Bob had grabbed his genitals, detectives scheduled an exam of Hearst to determine whether there were indications that a sexual assault had occurred. On the day of the examination, however, Hearst's story changed again. Now, he told detectives that Bob had grabbed his genitals over his clothing and that Bob had not inflicted any physical blows. This was vastly different from the other stories he had told. He further stated that he never suffered any prior injuries to his anus or genitals, even though he told police officers that Bob was a rape suspect. Hearst refused to allow medical staff to perform an anal exam on him. During this time, he again admitted to beating his stepfather to death, but now he claimed there were no weapons involved. It was around this time that detectives were able to confirm that Hurst suffered from certain mental conditions that led to him being hospitalized on multiple occasions. Detectives also uncovered that apparently Ashton Hurst's mental condition caused him to believe that men are homosexual and want to rape him. 8 days after Bob Gauci was found dead in his front yard, his stepson, 33-year-old Ashton Hurst, was arraigned in a Torrance courthouse where he pleaded not guilty to murder charges. In November of 2007, almost three years after Bob Gauci was killed, his stepson, Ashton Hurst, went on trial for his murder. The trial, held in Torrance Superior Court, was presided over by Judge Francis Horrigan. The jury, who would decide Ashton's fate, was made up of five women and seven men. District Attorney Jeff Stottle described the gruesome crime scene during his opening statements. Stoddle told the jury that Bob Gauci's death had nothing to do with sex or self-defense, as the defense would have them believe. Stoddle said that Ashton Hearst had delusions that his stepfather had sexually assaulted him, and this was one of Hearst's motives for killing him. These delusions, Stoddle said, were present due to Hearst's mental illness which made him believe that men were homosexual and wanted to rape him. Stoddle told the jury that Hearst could differentiate between right and wrong at the time of the murder, and that no rape or attempted rape had occurred. He presented a second motive for the crime. He said that Hearst became angry upon hearing from his stepfather that he could no longer live in the home with his mom. Stoddle told the jury that in the past, Hearst's mental condition worsened during times when he was not living with his mother. Stoddle said that Hearst knew his condition would get worse if he was separated from his mother, and that was even more reason for him to kill Bob, who had just told him he could no longer live with his mother. You probably heard me tell you about Pretty Litter in a previous episode and how my friend started using it for her cat named Dolce. Well, here's an update. My friend told me that she is permanently making the switch to Pretty Litter because Dolce's bathroom breaks no longer leave stink bombs behind. Pretty Litter is not like traditional cat litter, because it does so much more than just serve as a place for your cat to do their thing. Pretty Litter's sparkly crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that does not smell. And if you're tired of the nasty dust your current cat litter produces, Pretty Litter is virtually dust free. My friend said she loves that Pretty Litter is delivered in a small, lightweight bag that's so easy to store. No more lugging heavy cat litter from her car to the house and then struggling to find a place to store it. By far, my friend told me what she loves most about Pretty Litter is the innovation because it changes colors if Dolce is potentially sick. Pretty Litter essentially does a urine test every time Dolce goes to the bathroom. And if the litter changes color, she knows he might be sick. Do what my friend did and make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com promo code MURDERISH for 20% off. prettylitter.com promo code MURDERISH. There is so much pressure and stress that comes along with everyday life, and that stress can interfere with our happiness. It can be very helpful to seek counseling when these issues arise, but meeting with someone on their schedule and at their location isn't always convenient. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes in. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, and more. And of course, anything you share is completely confidential. BetterHelp is unique in that they make counseling services convenient by offering counseling online through video chat and you can chat with your counselor via text message too. If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, simply request a new one at any time at no charge. Not only can you receive counseling from the convenience of your own home, BetterHelp services will not break the bank. Murderish listeners can get an extra discount by going to BetterHelp.com Murderish and entering promo code Murderish. That's BetterHelp.com Murderish and use promo code Murderish for 10% off your first month. Ashton Hurst was represented by Henry Salcido, who acknowledged in his opening statement that his client suffered from mental illness, but he said this was not a factor in Bob's death. Instead, Salcido said that Hearst's actions that night were motivated by Bob Gauci sexually assaulting and trying to kill him on the night in question. Salcido said that Hearst was defending himself against Bob, who grabbed a knife during the altercation. Salcido went on to tell the jury that Bob Gauci had been leading a double life and that he had homosexual or bisexual tendencies. The prosecution pointed out during trial that Hurst had told numerous stories about what allegedly happened the day that Bob was killed. D.A. Stottle told the jury that Hurst admitted to killing his stepfather, but his account of what happened changed from the time he gave a statement to detectives to the time he spoke with his mother and sister from jail. During one version, Stoddle said Hurst told detectives that Bob approached him while he was naked and he reacted by punching Bob. In another one of Hearst's versions, Stottle said he claimed that Bob was naked and asked him to perform sexual acts. In this version, Hearst also claimed that after he punched Bob, his stepfather grabbed his genitals, blocked the exit, and attacked him. The prosecution entered Exhibit 39 into evidence, which was a copy of a 10-page letter that Hearst wrote in March of 2005 one month after Bob's death. In the handwritten letter, Hearst describes another version of what allegedly happened that night. Hearst wrote that Bob asked him to come into his bedroom and he complied. He wrote in the letter that Bob was naked at the time and that he was high after doing lines of cocaine. That said, the toxicology report indicated that there were no drugs in Bob's system. Hearst's letter claimed that Bob raised his eyebrow and asked him if he wanted some. Hearst claimed that Bob's raised eyebrow indicated to him that he wanted sex. At this point, according to Hearst's letter, he reacted to Bob's raised eyebrow with a shocked expression on his face. Upon seeing his stepson's expression, Hearst wrote that Bob said to him, What are you, a little bitch? What the fuck? I thought you knew. Don't be a little bitch. Hearst wrote that after Bob made those angry statements to him, he then walked over to his nightstand and said to Hearst, You're fucking dead. Hearst wrote that he believed Bob was going to grab a weapon, so he pushed Bob, and that's when, according to Hearst's letter, Bob attacked him. Hearst then described in his letter a very dramatic fight, almost like it was straight out of an action movie. He claimed their violent struggle continued with Bob dropping the knife he was holding and then picking it back up again, at which time, according to the letter, Hearst threw a weight that hit Bob in the face. Hearst claimed that Bob tried to stab him several times during the struggle, and he responded by hitting Bob numerous times with the weight in his face, chest, and the back of his head. After being hit numerous times with the dumbbell, Hearst claimed that Bob still had the knife in his hand. He said they both ended up in the front yard as they continued struggling over the knife, which was, according to Hearst, still in Bob's hand. While they were in the front yard, Hearst wrote that he was able to spin Bob around and trip him, which caused Bob to fall to his knees. He claimed that Bob was very much a risk because even while on his knees, Bob was a manic monster with a knife in his hand. Hearst wrote that he kicked Bob in the face and stomach, which made Bob fall and drop the knife. Hearst claimed that he was panicked and in shock, believing that he was in a fight for his life, so he kicked Bob six to eight more times in the head, which caused Bob to lose consciousness. Hearst wrote that he grabbed the knife and began walking to the house, but decided instead to stab Bob in the neck. Bob was still breathing at the time he stabbed him in the neck, according to the letter. Hearst wrote that he wasn't certain as to why he stabbed Bob, but believed that maybe he did it because Bob would be hurt for the rest of his life. The prosecution then presented Exhibit 40, which was another letter written by Hearst, giving another account of what happened that night. This letter, 16 pages in length and typed, outlined a version of what happened that was very different from what he claimed in his previous letter. In this letter, Hurst never mentioned that he and Bob made it outside to the front lawn. The second letter also claimed that after Bob allegedly raised his eyebrow to Hurst, signaling that he wanted to have sex, Hurst wrote that he responded by calling his stepfather a fag. D.A. Stottle called numerous witnesses to speak about Bob Gouchy’s character. On the stand, All of these witnesses claimed that Bob was liked by everyone and that he was not a violent person. These witnesses also testified that Bob mentioned to them that he was frustrated with his stepson and the fact that he was living in their home. According to these witnesses, Bob's frustration with Hearst stemmed from his belief that his stepson was allowing his business to fail and that he was abusing drugs. Head baseball coach at Harbor College, Mark Alvalar, testified for the prosecution. According to Denise Nix's article in the Daily Breeze titled Killer Coach Draw Praise, Alvalar said on the stand that on the night of the killing, at around 5 p.m., Bob said to him that he needed to tell his stepson to leave the house that night. Alvalar said that Bob told him it was going to be a hassle because he cared about his stepson who he said was not a bad kid. Alvalar said that Bob told him he couldn't have his stepson freeloading off of his mother. Laura Gray, who worked with Bob Gauchy, testified that Bob told her that he and Melba were trying to have a baby. Calling this witness may have been an attempt by the prosecution to show the jury that Bob Gauchy was heterosexual, countering the defense's claim that he was homosexual. Bob Gauchy's wife, Melba, had gone so far as to reverse a tubal ligation in order to have children with Bob. When asked whether Bob and Melba were using artificial methods to have a child, according to Denise Nix's article in the Daily Breeze, Gray responded by saying that Bob told her they were doing it the old-fashioned way. This would not be the last time that Bob and Melba's sex life would be brought up during trial, as each side tried to prove their theories based partially on Bob's sexual orientation. D.A. Stottle entered into evidence records that confirmed Ashton Hurst's mental illness and that he had previously threatened to cut his mother's tongue out. Stottle also called to the stand a Torrance PD officer who testified that on the night of the killing, Hurst would have had to walk 140 feet round trip in order to get the knife from the kitchen and then go back outside to the front yard to stab Bob, who was unconscious by this time. Stottle told the jury that this demonstrated that Hearst deliberated and premeditated Bob's murder, which are both necessary for a first-degree murder conviction. Defense attorney Salcido tried to bring into evidence a sexually explicit email that Bob gauchi sent to another man while he was married to Melba, as well as the items that were found in his truck, which were of a sexual nature. Salcido believed the email would corroborate Hearst's claim that Bob made sexual advances toward him and raped him. It seemed that Salcido was claiming that because Bob Gauchi was allegedly homosexual, that this meant he might be more prone to being a sexual predator. Salcido believed the email showed character flaws in Bob that would indicate that he was capable of sexual assault against his stepson. Judge Horgan rejected Salcedo's request to enter these items as evidence, stating that Bob's alleged extramarital activities had no bearing on whether Hearst had the capacity to commit murder. Although that evidence was rejected, Salcedo was able to call another witness to the stand who would speak to the pornographic images found on Bob's computer. Salcido called Marsha Barnett to the stand. Barnett was the detective who had analyzed Bob Gauci's computer and found pornographic material on it. When questioned about the images, Barnett testified that she found approximately fifteen to 16,000 pornographic pictures on Bob's computer, of which 24 of them depicted homosexual activity. Salcido was particularly interested in having Barnett talk about the images That depicted homosexual pornography, as he believed this corroborated Hearst's claim that Bob made sexual advances toward him and raped him. Ashton's mother, Melba, was called by the defense to testify. On the stand, Melba would paint a very different picture of her husband than what had been presented by the prosecution. Melba told the jury that her son was quiet, respectful, and honest, and that he was a good person. She said that her son said to her on numerous occasions that Bob was probably a faggot. Although Bob's co-worker testified that Bob told him he was going to evict Hearst, Melba said that Bob never mentioned that to her. Salcido began questioning Melba regarding Bob's alleged violent tendencies. Melba proceeded to describe various times when her husband lost his temper. She said on one occasion that Bob approached her in a scary manner and began throwing items in the house. She said she called 911 that day because she was afraid. Melba said that her husband had become angry after she wanted to get romantic, which Bob had no interest in doing. Melba said that although her husband scared her, he didn't lay his hands on her, and no police report was filed. Melba claimed that she and Bob had a sexless marriage, even though she had gotten surgery to reverse a tubal ligation. Although Melba told her son previously during recorded phone conversations that he was a liar, she now believed her son's story about Bob sexually abusing him. In a rare move, Ashton Hurst took the stand in his own defense. Whether he helped himself by doing this is up for debate. On the stand, Ashton Hurst told yet another version of what allegedly happened the day he killed his stepfather. In a long and drawn-out manner, Hurst told the jury that while he was cleaning the knife he'd used to assault Bob, he began experiencing delusional thoughts. He said his repressed memories from 1997 and 1999, when Bob allegedly raped him, resurfaced. That's when, according to Hurst, he went back outside and kicked Bob. On the stand, Hurst said he never had intentions of killing Bob. When confronted by Stottle during cross-examination regarding the two letters he'd written, Hearst admitted that one of the letters was extremely inconsistent with his statements on the witness stand and that his second letter was different from his first letter. During his account of what allegedly happened that night, Hearst said on the stand that he and Bob both took possession of a coat rack in the house during their fight. On cross-exam, Stottle submitted as evidence a photo showing the coat rack standing upright when investigators arrived on scene. This evidentiary photo contradicted Hearst's claim that he and Bob had both grabbed the coat rack during their struggle. The defense and the prosecution each called their own medical experts. While some of their opinions differed, both doctors concluded that Ashton Hearst was sane and knew the difference between right and wrong. I recently had the opportunity to tell a personal story on a podcast called What Was That Like? I was able to rehash the night a stranger followed me home and came into my bedroom. On What Was That Like? Host Scott Johnson talks to people who've experienced something highly unusual In an episode of What Was That Like? titled Whitney Was Shot 12 Times, Scott speaks to a woman who walked in on an active shooting and got shot 12 times. Miraculously, the woman survived and she walked Scott through the terrifying ordeal. Wherever you're listening now, take a second to search What Was That Like? and hit subscribe. There are plenty of mind-blowing episodes to binge. I started with episode one and I'm quickly making my way through the entire library of episodes. Listening to the episode titled Marina Was Stalked was a real eye-opener for me. Search what was that like, hit subscribe, and start binging. Ishers, you know I love helping you find binge-worthy podcasts. Well, stop what you're doing, search criminal conduct, and hit subscribe hosted by John Taylor and my friend, Javier Leva, Criminal Conduct is an investigative podcast that dives deep into the case involving Michelle O'Connell, who broke up with her boyfriend and just minutes later, she was dead. Michelle's death was quickly ruled a suicide, but was it? Amateur investigator Eli Washtalk began looking into Michelle's case, but it seems someone did not want him looking into her case because Eli wound up murdered Two people connected to this case are dead. There is so much more to this story. Do me a favor, Ishers. Stick around after my closing comments at the very end of this episode to hear a sneak peek of what you can expect to hear on criminal conduct. In his closing argument, Stoddle told the jury that Ashton Hurst committed first-degree murder because he had walked 140 feet round trip to retrieve the knife, and go back out to the yard to stab Bob Gouchy, Stottle said this showed deliberation and premeditation on Hearst's part. Stottle said about Hearst, He didn't need to do what he did. Nearly decapitating someone is the ultimate form of human violent depravity. Stottle said that Bob Gouchy did not want Hearst to live with him and his wife anymore because he was sick of him freeloading and doing drugs. As far as motive for the crime, Stoddle said that Hearst could not stand the thought of being separated from his mom, and so he killed the person who was attempting to do that. Even after Hearst had incapacitated Bob and eliminated any opportunity for Bob to be a threat, he still went after him and ultimately killed him. The defense asked the jury during closing arguments whether it made more sense that Hearst would kill Bob because he was forcing him to move out or because Bob was sexually assaulting him. Salcido pointed out that Hearst's mother testified that she and Bob never had sex during their marriage and he drew their attention to the fact that pornographic images were found on Bob's computer. Salcido told the jury that Hearst acted in the heat of passion and that this clearly was not first-degree murder. After five weeks, the trial concluded on December 13th of 2007, nearly three years after Bob Gauchi's death. The jury began deliberating and were tasked with determining whether Ashton Hurst was guilty of involuntary manslaughter, second-degree or first-degree murder. After a day and a half of deliberations, the jury returned a verdict on December 14th, finding Ashton Hurst guilty of first-degree murder. Hearst sat emotionless as the verdict was read by the court clerk. Several members of the jury spoke out after the trial concluded, making it very clear they did not believe anything Hearst said, given that he kept changing his story. The jury didn't believe that Bob Gouchy sexually assaulted Hearst or that the killing was in self-defense. On February 13th of 2008, Ashton Hurst was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, the maximum sentence allowed. Again, Hurst showed no emotion as the sentence was handed down. According to an online article in the Daily Breeze written by Denise Nix, Bob Gouchy's brother, Thomas, said at the sentencing hearing, you have taken away my brother and friend. He went on to say, I have forgiven you for the murder of my brother. Thomas said in court that he did not want to allow anger, bitterness, and resentment to overcome him because then Ashton Hurst will have taken his life, too. In the year following his 25-to-life sentence, Ashton Hurst appealed his conviction to the California Second Court of Appeals, claiming he didn't get a fair trial, based on several factors. After this appeal was denied, Hurst then appealed to the California Supreme Court who refused to hear his case. In 2013, a memorial for Bob gauchi was printed in the baseball program at Los Angeles Harbor College. The memorial reads in part, Bob gauchi June 2, 1960 to February 8, 2005. He was an inspiration to all who knew him and is truly missed. Ashton Hurst is currently serving his sentence at Soledad State Prison in Central California. His first chance at parole will be in March of 2027. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit subscribe wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. If you feel like it, you can leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like more info about the show or me, head over to Murderish.com. On the website, you can also sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched by Gina Mazzolini and written by me. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources including, but not limited to, news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes, someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to tell these stories. Thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode include People vs. Hearst, Court of Appeals Documents, Denise Nix of the Daily Breeze, Larry Altman of the Daily Breeze, Denise Nix of the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin, and the Los Angeles Harbor College Seahawk Baseball Program. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Listen, hang on, Alex, let me tell you the truth. I, I work with y'all. Get someone here now. This is Jeremy Banks, his girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell. Her death was officially ruled a suicide, but not everyone believes the sheriff's conclusion. Then, a private citizen named Eli Washtock began investigating her case. But before he could finish, he was murdered. We're picking up where Eli Washtock left off. Yeah! From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washdock. Download Criminal Conduct wherever you listen to podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old.